on this earth. And we looked at some principles that were important to note about marriage, but uh, we didn't quite finish the coverage of that passage. So this morning we returned to it, and I want to point out to you three more very important principles about God's design for the way a man and a woman come together and form a marriage. Okay? I just love that picture. It's, it's straining the manliness in me, but i got to just admit it. It's such a cute picture. Let me just read you a few little quips and quotes that I pulled off the Internet and other sources over the years about marriage, and I just kept them because I, I think they're kind of funny in a cynical way, but also, boy, they, they really educate me on the world's general view, the dim view of marriage. Listen to these things. A woman said, My husband brought, bought me a mood ring the other day. When I'm in a good mood, it turns green. and When I'm in a bad mood, it leaves a red mark on his forehead. Messed up, man. Here's another one. A little boy asked his father, Daddy, how much does it cost to get married? And the father replied, I don't know, son. I'm still paying. Then there was a man who said, I never knew what real happiness was until I got married. And then it was too late. Here's another one. The secret of a happy marriage remains a secret. Here's the last one. There were so many. I just could go on and on. Adam and Eve had an ideal marriage. He didn't have to hear about all the men she could have married, and she didn't have to hear about the way that his mother cooked. You know, all those things make us laugh because they're funny, and maybe because they hit a little too close to home in some cases. But here's the interesting thing about those things. The common denominator is that those, those statements share a very dim view of marriage. I know a lot of them are said tongue-in-cheek. They're not philosophical statements. But in general, they paint a picture of marriage as a, a temporary arrangement, something that's not full of joy, but it's like a, a rope around your neck or a ball and chain stuck to your foot. It's something that has all cost and no payoff. But I don't think that's the way that marriage is supposed to be. That is the way some marriages end up becoming, and there's no doubt about that. But I don't think that's God's design for marriage at all. And while our failings and the pressures of life on this earth have produced some very, very sad outcomes in marriage, let's not let our failings, unfortunately, taint an institution that God ordained as one of the greatest sources of human joy. Let's not let our own personal experiences somehow lead us to believe that marriage in itself is something to be avoided or looked upon cynically because it is among the greatest gifts that God has provided for the human experience. There are many other wonderful gifts, but marriage is most definitely one of the blessings of life on this earth. We want to look at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. It shouldn't take very long to find it. It's the the second chapter of the whole Bible. Why don't we turn to it together? And we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. And actually, for the purposes of context, I'll read the whole passage, but we're going to be focusing on verses 22 to 25. I'm going to read out of the ESV. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The last time I spoke out of this passage, we learned that it is not a good thing for man or woman to be alone, that we were not designed to live in isolation. And so God intends that part of our human joy should be found in needing and being with other human beings. We also learned that in marriage we find a helper who sustains us spiritually and emotionally for the journey to make it to the end. But note also the word helper implies that if you have nothing to do, you don't need a helper. You don't need help doing nothing. But it implies that God has given a purpose and a calling to each one of us. And we seek out marriage because it also helps us live out God's great purpose for our own lives. And marriage, when marriage is working well, that is one of the greatest components of the joy we feel, is that we are in something greater than ourselves and we're in it together. It's a wonderful feeling that we can enjoy in a healthy marriage. Another thing we learn is that God does the heavy lifting. Adam wasn't scoping the malls and the clubs for a wife. He was knocked unconscious under general anesthesia. And God formed with his own hands the ideal mate for Adam and presented her to him. So that's where we left off. You can flash that first slide. Do you remember that picture we left off with, with a hand holding up one of the gummy bears? And it was being presented. Go to the next slide, guys. Right there. Do you remember that was the last picture minus the hearts? And we're saying that God presents a mate to us. And it is our, our roles to actively appropriate or receive what God himself has provided for us. Well, as we continue on, we want to note a few things about how that works itself out now as the rubber hits the road. And the first point is this. In marriage, as God provides us the mate that he intends, we are free to be passionate I didn't know how to actually communicate passion, but there's my attempt. A, like this laser beam or something of hearts. It's totally dorky, but that's, that's as good as it gets. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 23. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know, as he, emerge, as he emerges from the grogginess of his anesthesia, and everything's blurry and it's slowly starting to come into focus, what do you think Adam sees? There before him, as the fog clears, stands a naked woman. The first time that man has beheld that sight in human history. And the reaction Adam has is pretty much the same reaction every man has had ever since his time. It is a reaction that is echoed through the generations. Some of you guys are looking really hot under the collar and uncomfortable. Come on, stay with me. It's not going to get rated 
NC 17. He's looking at this woman and he feels this visceral reaction. The truth was every animal he looked at was naked as a jaybird. Even the jaybird was naked. And nothing produces a response in him. But he sees this woman and there's nothing like designer clothing or any of that to get in the way and become a layer or a barrier. This is the essence of what is being presented. He sees everything and he says, my God. This is unbelievable. If you could spell a word like this, I think the, the word in the Bible would have been, mm. in fact, that should be in the Bible, I think. If that could be recorded, I bet you a sound like that escaped Adam's throat. Mm. My goodness, Lord. And then because he has to also elaborate something that can be spelled, he says this, and if you look at the Hebrew, it's an amazing thing. The language clearly shifts from journalistic prose to very rich poetic language. All this while, it's like a news article, and then Adam did this, and then God said this. But right at that moment, the language shifts to poetry. And while it may not sound like poetry to you, when Adam says, at last, what he's saying is, I didn't think that there was any hope for me, because we done named every creature God has made, and none of them were quite ready for me. But then the next thing I knew, God came and said, he tapped me, gave me the Vulcan neck pinch. I was out like this. And next thing I know, I wake up, look what I have. Unbelievable. God knows what he's doing. She is perfect for me. And it's not just the fact that, you know, you know what I mean. She looks nice. By the way, you notice that men are by nature visual. There is no victor's secret. There's just Victoria's secret. It's just the way it works. Beautiful women with hideous trolls of men, like my marriage. Just look, look at us. It, it's always going to be a mismatch. Men are just more visual, and that's not really such a bad thing. But it's much more than just the visual satisfaction. God looks at, Adam looks at Eve, and he says, there is something deeper than just the hotness. There's something substantially satisfying about the way that this creature matches me. We are alike in the most important ways. There's something that I sense will be a very deep and ultimately fulfilling connection between us. And so Adam says to, to, of her, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In a way, it's like saying, I like her so much, it's like the way I feel about myself. And that's pretty honest, isn't it? Because frankly, you, we like ourselves a whole lot. We take care of ourselves pretty well, and we're pretty satisfied, most of us, with us. And what he's saying is, it's, the best I can say is, she's like me almost. <laughs> okay, do you get that? And remember, Adam hadn't sinned yet. Things hadn't fallen apart. He is the ideal man. He says, that is the ideal companion to the ideal man. One of the things I learned from that is that somehow when God brings a man and a woman together, there is meant to be a spark of genuine romance. There have been a lot of leaders in the Christian church, pious men and women, who out of good intentions tried very hard to control the human heart to say, you must never get overly excited about anything but Jesus. You must never express that uh, feeling for anything other than the taste of the communion wafer or the way you feel during prayer meetings because the only true passion in life must be aimed upward at God, baloney. 
That's, that's totally false. The greatest passion we have must be aimed at God, but we legitimately are called to experience something like that sound, especially in the context of a man and a woman being presented to one another by the hands of a loving God. There's meant to be this spark of romance. There are so many couples I see that just kind of like, yes, we will learn to tolerate each other. And... Uh, I think the Lord has some good work and we will merge our ministry gift giftings and we will make a life together. It's hard to look at each other, but we'll make it work somehow. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. I don't think it's supposed to be. You have your bed. I have my bed. Stay together for the kids. But as soon as they're in college, (laughs) I don't think that's supposed to be it either. Somehow the ideal picture must be. This is not an excess thing. This is not the A plus thing. This is the baseline passing grade. When marriage is working by God's design, there must be passion. And part of that is naturally evoked, but so much of it must be worked at in a fallen world. Just because you are faithful people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, just because you are spiritual people, does not mean somehow you're supposed to deaden that part of yourself that God is trying to quicken. I think God touches our hearts and says, come on, there's a pulse in there. And we, we always go, no, we love the Lord. We are appropriate, proper people. We don't get excited about anything. That's wrong. Get excited. Babble on and on to your friends about this person you found. Let everyone in the world know you have found the greatest thing. You should feel like, oh my gosh, how come nobody has clubbed over that and dragged her to her cave yet? Could I be the only one who spotted her? What great fortune have I found on this earth? That is the way we are meant to feel about our mates. You want to know what that feels? Just talk to, buy Jeannie lunch sometime. Ask her how she feels about me. She will give you a graduate level education on passion. It's almost embarrassing. You know, we need to, to work hard at generating and maintaining that genuine sense of deep satisfaction with one another. You're not supposed to get married and go, I dare you to love this. <laughs> I, I quit. I gave up. I'm not going to try anymore because I got you. Where are you going to go, huh? Where are you going to run? Is that the attitude we have in marriage? You know, we're so smooth when we're dating. We're like, uh-huh, yes, let me take you out to fondue. When do you eat fondue? Give me a break. You only fond if you're trying to impress someone. Well, no, some people in our church still eat fondue. But you know what I'm talking about. You, you get dressed, you wear all that stuff, you, you rehearse lines in French, and you do all that kind of nonsense because you're trying to be so smooth and romantic, and the truth is, that's good stuff. It works. You got her, didn't you? That stuff really works. But the amazing thing is, and, and the girls are all trying their hardest to, to pluck things here and tuck things there. And why? Because it works. God can use it to produce in one another a response that he intends to use to bond people together. Because marriage is hard work, but it's not all just hard work. You're supposed to high-five yourself once in a while and go, I can't believe it. It's so good. And that stuff that worked in courtship also works in marriage. The problem is most of us just stop trying. There's so many guys who used to try so hard to be at the club and all that. And then after they got their wives, they just go... I'm just going to eat because <laughs> I don't care. I got you. Where are you going to go? And, and that's, of course, just a physical component. But even the opening of doors, the basic consideration for, for another person. I see so little manners in marriage sometimes. 
So little basic chivalry, courtesy. It's like she'll get her own door, you know? I think we need to, to start, and I'm going to make this a, a general rule. I can't enforce it, you know. I'll give you a spiritual slap or something. But guys, for goodness sake, at least eight, nine times a year, walk around the car and open the door for your lady. What's wrong with you? Come on. Guys, raise your hand if you still do that, if you're, if you're still uh, opening doors for the ladies. Raise them high like you're proud of it. Now, raise them, keep your hand up if you're married and you're still doing that. Yes. Those are the men who will disciple you. Make notes. Those are your heroes. Ladies, jab the guy next to you. See, that guy does that. It's important. Now, married women can also give you a challenge in this very safe public setting. I can't say this in private, but, you know, your girlfriend's at the bridal shower, bought you all that stuff in Victoria's Secret. It's not supposed to stay in a box in the back of your closet. That wasn't for you. That gift isn't so you can feel pretty. It's for your husband. Take it out and use it for his sake. Men, you owe me big. Passes appreciation month, October. Remember it. And listen, it's not just the lingerie, although every man dreams of coming home from work and seeing his wife in lingerie cooking dinner, you know. It's, that kind of stuff never happens in reality. But listen, we keep it real, Harvest, don't we? Listen, at least try that much. But on top of that, what about the compliments? What about just the simple ways in which we try to let the other person know, I dig you. I really think you're awesome. Even verbalizing the things we've said a hundred times because it never gets old. You never get sick of hearing why another person loves you. Never, ever get sick of it. And if the romance, the spark is missing, well, you got to do something to give it CPR. And God will help you because it's his design and he, he enjoys seeing that in our marriages. And if you need some practical advice, come talk to me and Pastor Frank and we'll give you some really good advice because we know what we're doing. Amen, bro? There's a lot of other guys in our church who are working and they know what to do. And a lot of great ladies who know how to keep a man happy and how to keep that spark alive. If you're having trouble, talk to someone. But make sure you don't just resign yourself to letting it slide down that hill. Don't let it get there. In marriage, we are free in Christ to be passionate. Don't you ever forget that. Amen? Here's the second thing we're free to be in marriage. We're free to be one. We are free to be one. Cue slide two. Thank you. There it is. I was going to try to find other pictures of gummy bears and fuse them together. You know how when you eat gummy bears sometimes, don't you do this? You bite one in half, you bite the other half, and you stick them together. And you're like, look, I got Siamese twin gummy bears. I wanted to do that digitally, and I just didn't have the skills or the time. Okay. So that's the best I could do. But that's really not even a good depiction of the biblical union that marriage really is. It's interesting that this verse, verse 24, is the one verse that both Jesus in Matthew 19, 5, and Paul in Ephesians 5, 31 quote when they teach on marriage. That this verse seems to be in their minds the pivotal definition of the theology of marriage. And that is this. Listen to what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's two parts of that verse I've got to really work on. The first part has to do with in-law issues. 
And the second part has to do with marital intimacy and the depth of our union. Let's deal with the first part. And I'm going to tell you right now that some of you are right in the middle of these in-law tensions and it's very hard for you to hear it and receive it because you're stuck in, the, in between a rock and a hard place. You're stuck between two families that you want to be loyal to and you don't know how to negotiate that tension and it's driving you nuts. But let me tell you that your, your paralysis, your impotence on this issue is driving somebody you care about also very nuts. And you need to hear not just what you feel and think about the matter, but you need to hear this morning what God has to say about the issue of in-laws. Because next to to money and sexual issues, in-law issues are a huge part of why marriages fall apart. It's one of the most common things you fight about. It's not even the two of you. It's not like you're going, I'm mad at you. It's like, I can't handle your family. They're driving me nuts. How does such a normal person get produced by such a strange tribe of people? Do you ever think that to yourself? Well, don't say it out loud. I mean, people are watching. In your life, if you get married, you're going to experience two families that will mean the world to you. The first family is the family of your birth. You have no choice in the matter on that one. How many of you sat in a planning meeting in heaven and said, which family do you want to end up in? No, that didn't happen. One day you just, it's like, like Keanu Reeves, the Matrix, all gooey. You come out. And there are these people looking at you and go, guess what? We're your family. And you're like, why? Well, you don't say that at birth. You just say that when you get old enough to realize you got a weird family. Some of us really regret the family we were forced to grow up in. And some of us love the family we were blessed to grow up in. But regardless of which way you fall, the one thing is true. You don't have any choice in the matter. The family of your birth is the family you were assigned, and that's that. And you've got to make the most of it. But there's a second family that many many of you will experience in this world. And that is the family of your marriage. And that is a family you have all the say in the world about in most cases. See, the thing about marriage in the free world is no one puts a gun to your head and tells you to marry anyone. You can gripe and moan all you want about the family of your birth. And people will feel sorry for you. My goodness, that's terrible. But the family you choose, the family you build on this earth, that's all you. And you ought not to complain too much about that. You need to find God's principles for it and make the most of it. Because having chosen, you must now build well and by the blueprint of the one who designed the whole thing. That second family, the family of your marriage, is the one you're going to enter into if you're getting married. You know, a lot of times we tell people, you're a family if you have kids and you're just a couple if you don't have kids. But that's not the way God sees it. The day that you get married, you cross an invisible threshold and you now leave primarily the family of your birth and you have now formed a whole new family that has never existed in the world before. You don't need kids to make a family because in God's eyes, a new clan, a new branch of the family tree has just now been formed the day you said I do to one another in the presence of God. Every married couple is a family. When kids come, the family just gets bigger. And that's the theological truth you must embrace. This is now your family. You think about your mother and father, and in most cases, it seems like an inviolable, sacred union. Mom and dad seem more related than you and your brother and sister do, right? But they were once strangers to each other, and they once stood in a ceremony just like you will or just like you did, and they become a family. And that is a very profound connection. 
And that is what it is when you become married. And and as a result, when you cross that threshold, it's a matter of the shifting of your priorities, not just your love, but your priorities. You will still love your parents and your siblings for the rest of your life, we hope. In most cases, that's true. But your whole definition of family now changes. I tell often the couples that I'm counseling a a, a story about a a pastor friend I knew when I was younger. And right after I got married, he said, Dave, where does your family live? And he said, they live in Libertyville. And he whacked me in the back of the head. What's up? He goes, well, Dave, where's your family live? I'm like, they live in Libertyville. You know that. And he hit me again. And finally, I got it before the third hit because I'm smart. (laughs) And I said, oh, okay. My parents live in Libertyville. My brother and his family live in Vernon Hills. But me and my family live in Glendale Heights. He goes, good, dummy. Do you get that? The day I got married, Jeannie became my family. My nuclear family. I'm no longer a little boy and I got mommy and daddy and brother and all that. I have become a family. Someday, Lord willing, we would become somebody else's mommy and daddy. We have now become a new nuclear family. And I guarantee you it does not take children to make that real in God's eyes. That day, your loyalties and priorities must shift. So that you legitimately leave behind the way you always felt about nuclear family and you displace it to this new family. That is not to say you disregard or dishonor those people who raised you. You will always honor them by God's command and they will always be your blood, your kin. But this new thing going on requires and deserves your priority and your loyalty, fiercely so. This is the family that must be guarded and nurtured with everything you've got Because this is now your family. Those other people are your relatives. In biblical marriage, there is no room for the mama's boy and the daddy's girl. Do you understand that? That is a cute thing we we say to describe children. But in marriage, you leave that other family behind. And that's not my plan. I'm not that crazy about the idea, but that's God's design for this to work. What that means, and we certainly don't want to create artificial uh, dilemmas here. You know, we don't want to say, you choose. Do you, you, it's not a healthy thing to say to your wife, who do you love more, me or your dad? Tell me right now. That's just messed up. That's my insecurity talking, and that's an unnecessary tension to create. But there are going to be legitimate situations that arise where you're going to be forced into the issue. Who has my priority? Who has my deeper loyalty? Is it the nuclear family that raised me or the nuclear family I am now building? Which is it that must get my first response? And in God's eyes, there is, no, there is a no-brainer involved here. God says without hesitation, it is your spouse and your new nuclear family that must get the priority. And when it doesn't work this way, in-law issues tear a marriage apart. For some of us, our inability or unwillingness to shield our mates from the inappropriate treatment and the unrealistic expectations and demands of our own parents has got them in prison in a world of misery you cannot possibly understand. And because they love you, they will bear it as long as they can, but you are killing them through your impotence if this is what's going on. You can't just smile at your mom and dad and go, I love these folks and honey, just bear with it because we got to be loyal to them. Who are you loyal to? If your mate is suffering, you must find the strength to say, mom and dad, this is my family now. These things you're doing are unreasonable. 
unrealistic and I have to draw a line somewhere because this is someone I'm called to defend and cherish and protect above everything else. Now you got to be wise. You don't just say that stuff willy-nilly like you wanted to eat at McDonald's, they want to eat at Burger King. You go, Mom, Dad, this is unreasonable. Give me a break. Have some wisdom. But there will be situations where you will clearly know in the Lord that it's time to make a stand. And men especially, I say to you, you need to protect your wives from your parents if that's the case. Rise out of that tiny boy that has always feared their reaction. Because in saying yes to your mother and father, you may be resigning yourself to a world of misery until the day that you or they pass away. Your wives, because they care about you, won't say a whole lot to your face, but they are groaning to everyone else because it's not easy to live like that. And I can't tell you what your situation is because I can't judge it from this distance. But I'm asking you, men and women both, to go home today and examine your heart. And then you ask your mate this honest question. Is that going on in our marriage? Is my family becoming an unreasonable and unbearable strain to what we have here? Because if it is, I want to hear it out. I want to talk about it. And I want to make some changes. Amen? Do not let in-law issues, untended and unmanaged, tear your good marriage to pieces. The second thing I had to say very quickly, because I'm running short on time here. Are you still with me? Riveted because it's about marriage, right? Good. Let's move on. The second thing is, it says, now that you've left, you're not standing outside going, where do I go now? There is a place to go. The husband and wife are to become one what? Flesh. And I wrestled with that word for five years, studying and wondering, what is with God? If all, of all the ways to, to complete a romantic sentence, I would never say to my wife, baby, let's you and me become one flesh. That's so base. It's so crude. I would have said something like, darling, you and I will become on this day one heart, one destiny, one love, one harmony. That's cool stuff, isn't it? But you know what? God goes, no, no, no. Here's the word. And it's the Hebrew word that means meat. (laughs) You will become one meat today. That's so gross. It's so unromantic and unpoetic, but it's so powerful in what it really says. Here's what I think it means. All that other stuff, it lives in the ether. Two people can be of one mind one day, and the next day they just go, you know what? We're not of one mind anymore. Love has ended. It has faded. It has ridden off into the sunset. I don't agree with you anymore. I don't think like you anymore. I don't even like you anymore. All of that stuff lives somewhere in the, in the abstract But meat is of this world. It's visceral. It's tangible. And you don't just say to your arm, hey, I no longer want to be attached to you and it doesn't feel anything. There's pain when meat gets separated from meat. What God is saying is he wants us to picture the profoundness of the union that takes place. And I often, and if you've been through premarital counseling with me, bear with me, you've heard this illustration before. There's this Plato illustration that I think says it so well. Kids who play with Play-Doh are never content to use just one color. And for an anal person like me, that's a real problem because I want to keep everything separate and in its own container. My kids always go, give us the pink and the blue one. And I watch and I always they mix it together. Now, there's a way you can mix it where you make like a snowman and, you know, the trunk is blue and then the torso is pink. And, and then you can separate those. 
and still a little pink and a little blue remain on the wrong sides, but you massage it a little while and it just kind of fades, right? So you retrieve the original pieces from what we call the union. But that's not the kind of mixing that we picture in marriage biblically. Country western songs may leave you feeling like we could part company and I still smell you on my pillow and all that. But you know what, this, the, the, what it says to us in the world? It says we just move on. Eventually I'll find myself again. And maybe you will by the grace of God. But it will never be the whole self because marriage binds you up with another person so profoundly. When you extract yourself from it by death or by divorce, it will never leave you the same person. That's not me condemning you to anything. That's just the the word of God describing how profoundly you are united to another human being when you stand at an altar before him and say, I do. It's the way my kids mix it. They mix it like this and eventually it becomes, you know, that cool swirly thing that looks like an expensive bowling ball all swirled up. But then eventually they massage it enough and it becomes one gigantic hunk of lavender. Pink and blue are now gone. I cannot even distinguish or recall what the one pile looked like from the other. And I can't extract the two piles ever again from that. There is one way. Uh, I, the nerd in me had to find this out. You can, you can completely desiccate it using liquid nitrogen and then shatter it to its different parts and put it through a, a, a spectrometer and, and a, a flow cytometer and it'll do it by differentials and weights, slight ones. You, you, know, you know what you have at the end? At the end, you're going to have a pile of pink dust and a pile of blue dust. As hard as you try to find yourself again, something of you died when you were extracted with that person. Something inside you fell apart in the most profound way. And I'm not saying that with relish or with vindictiveness. I'm saying that is one of the saddest things that happens. And the same thing happens when someone dies and you're left a widow or a widower. It is a profound union. And we're not ready for it in most cases. I hear so many young couples just before the wedding, they're talking like, it's going to be so cool. I'm going to get like this roommate for life. I don't have to drive her home anymore and all this stuff. But pretty much life is going to be like now, only I'll have food prepared for me and I'll have lots of sex. It's going to be awesome. I'm like, wow. You just wait. It's going to be those things, I, I promise you. But you're not emotionally ready for just how deeply you get fused to another person. It made me really, really uh, surprised when, when I was going through it because we've truly become like one person. There is no longer you and me, mine or yours. Everything is ours. In marriage, you are literally in the same boat. Can you imagine if I'm in the boat with Jeannie? I'm like, I'm so glad that we sprung a leak on your end of the boat and it's not my problem. Get to bailing because I'm comfortable. Eventually, we sink together. There's nothing that happens to my mate that does not ultimately touch my life. Sometimes because of consequence and sometimes because she will make me feel her pain. She'll share it with me, so generous. Whatever happens to your mate happens to you in the end. And if you forget that, you have violated a central principle of marriage. And that is that you leave your mother and father. And by the way, that, that word leave is really more like the English word cleave. It's not the, the gradual cutting away of a serrated blade. It is the, the decisive chopping of a cleaver. You leave that family. Emotionally, you got years to catch up to that. But that day, it's done. This is now your family. That happens. And you get joined to your wife and your husband. And you become one flesh. Siamese twins are a good illustration of this. Two distinct people, they have different brains, different minds, different wills. They could even argue. But at the end of the day, where are they going to go? I hate you. I'm going over there. Fine, I'm going over there. 
Try it. Try it. How, how are Siamese twins going to separate from each other? This is what it is to be married. To want so badly in a moment to go to the other room, but to realize, where am I going to go? We're joined. And I don't have a lot of options here, so I'll stay. Married people, don't you ever run away to your parents' home. That's not home for you anymore. Home is where your mate lives, and that is where you stay and work it out. You don't go, I'm going over to my parents' house. I'm going home because I don't like this place anymore. You don't get to ever do that again. Ever. Ever. Not even once. Home is where your mate lives, and that is where you stick it out. And if you need our help, you got 200 friends who will do everything in our power to help you, but you do not walk out ever. Do you hear me, people of Harvest? You do not ever walk out on that. And if you're a man and you try that, I will love you, I will plead with you, and I'll take you out behind the back of the church and you'll see that I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. And I'll do it because I care about you and your kids. Let me make one last point in the 45 seconds I have remaining. Woo! Show that last one, please. You are free to be yourself. The husband and wife were both naked and felt no shame. I didn't know how to depict gummy bear nudity. I was going to try to pixelate the private parts and all that, but it was just too much. So I just put a fence up. You perverts, you can't. They're naked behind that fence. That, that, just take it as that. Use your imagination. The point is they were naked. Nothing between them. But you know what? They didn't feel ashamed. Another way of saying it's not just shame, but they didn't feel unsafe. They did not feel vulnerable in that negative way, frightened that people might see. Nobody likes being naked in front of other people. Most of us don't even like being in the locker room at the gym. It's an uncomfortable experience walking around having everyone look at you and evaluate you and rank you and compare you and all that. It's just very, very uncomfortable. To be naked and unashamed means that you are truly yourself. There are no adornments or barriers. And in in other words, somebody fully sees you as you are, and they're okay with it. What an amazing thing. They may not be okay with everything, but they're saying, I can take you as you are, and we'll work on the other stuff. Do you know what an amazing gift that is? Do you know how exhausting it is to live the other way? To have to put on these masks and pretend you are this person that requires such a feat of rehearsal and preparation. And this person thinks, oh man, they are so smooth and they know French. You know like six lines of French. And you keep finding situations where you can use them. And she thinks you're fluent. And then the waiter talks back to you. And you're like, we. And you get raw liver or something because you can't speak French. You pretend to. Do you get the idea? It's exhausting to live in the maintenance of an illusion. The trick of marriage is not to fool somebody. It's to find someone you don't have to fool anymore, and they're going to stick around. You don't wake up at 4 in the morning and brush your teeth and lay back down so they think you have good morning breath. You turn and go, and the other person goes, I love you. And believe me, it happens. It happens to her, not to me. I, I have the bad breath. Her breath smells like jasmine and lilac in the morning. Praise the Lord. Let me just tell you a quick story, and I'll wrap this up. It's a funny story. I love going to the mall to people watch. I don't much like shopping. Uh, Jeannie always goes, why are you so mad when we're at the mall? I, I just don't really like that so much, but 
I love watching people. And I love watching teenagers because they got nothing else to do, right? And uh, I never told you the story before, did I? Did I, did I tell you before? About Stuart? No, I told you about the strutting part. I didn't tell you about Stuart, did I? This is a great story. I, I watched a lot of teenagers. I saw this very animated fight between a young boy. They could have been 13, maybe 14. A boy named Stuart and his girlfriend, Sarah. And I knew their names because they were saying them over and over very loudly. <laughs> Here's what was going on. Stuart was one of those guys I think we call a wankster. It's a, it's a rich suburban kid who acts like an inner city thug. He's got all the chains and everything. He's walking around. Yeah, yeah, you know. And he's talking like a tough guy. And he's putting on all these airs. And you could tell his girlfriend, Sarah, was really irritated because she wanted to talk seriously with him. They had a little tension, you know, in their 13-year-old relationship. And she was like, Stuart. And he kept like, what's up, baby? You know, and he's acting all tough. And she was frustrated because she couldn't get through to the real Stuart. So finally, she, she just loses. it. She goes, Stuart, you don't talk like that. You're not really ST3000 or whatever your friends call you. You are Stuart. Cut it out. Now, I thought Stuart was going to get real angry and get all hard on her, but instead the most amazing transformation took place. His shoulders drooped. He goes, sorry, Sarah. He's <laughs> like, Stuart, why do you do that? You don't really act like that. Cut it out. He goes, sorry, it's not like I'm trying to get you mad or anything. I just... I just like talking like that, all right? I'm sorry. And then you could tell he's getting embarrassed because his other friends are like, so they walk away and they begin to talk to each other. And finally, the real Stuart is talking to Sarah. My heart was touched. (laughs) I doubt they're going to get married, right? But listen, what I learned that day was it is so frustrating when you're trying to get to know someone and all they put up in front of you is that front. Do you ever feel like that with someone? Like, I've known you forever, and I have no idea who you actually are. You're literally impossible to know because it's like you don't want to be known. You're so terrified we might not like you, but it's the thing we suspect behind the masks that we're actually sticking around to see. The mask stinks. The mask bores us. The mask is embarrassing. But we think once in a while when we catch the glimpse that the face behind the mask is beautiful, so I stay to the end of the masquerade ball, hoping one day you'll let it down. Why do you keep it on? And isn't it exhausting to keep pretending? In marriage, you find someone who sees your toe jam, who smells your morning breath, who sees your eye boogers and all your flaws, and they stick around. And that's the beauty of marriage under the name and banner of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is our standard here. That is our goal. And that is my prayer for every marriage that is and will be in this place to the glory of God to the joy of each of you. Let's bow for prayer together. God, I pray for every marriage in this room and every marriage that is forming and every marriage that is being hoped for Let all of them be conducted and enjoyed by the design of the God who invented marriage. For we know that you do these things not to harm us or to rob us of anything, but because you love us so deeply and you want our joy to be complete. I pray that you will give us obedient hearts to you so that we will trust your design and not follow 
the leadings of our flawed and sinful hearts, but we'll stick with it and work it through because you know what you're doing and you know what you have called us to. I pray for every struggling marriage in this church that you will intervene by your great love and mercy and you will rescue those marriages and restore the joy to them because at the heart of it all, they love each other. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will help them to catch a moment of peace where they will remember that again. And you yourself will rebuild those broken homes. And I pray for those who are just starting out and have no idea what's awaiting them, that you will give them an education through the Word of God and through the counsel of those who have walked before them. Let them be like sponges now, learning and making ready to obey and follow the pattern that you have set. And I further pray for those who are hoping for marriage, that with this new insight, they will know how to find the mate with whom they can cross the finish line together. Lord, make us free to be passionate. and Make us free to truly be one, loyal, and with priority for each other. And make us free to be ourselves, fully known and unashamed. Do this by your power in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I looked at the clock. I don't think we have time for the closing song because the next service has to get in here. Would you just bow with me one more time and rise to your feet and let's just receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and yet be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you with his divine smile of love. May he give you peace both now and forevermore in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all. Let's make sure we share fellowship before we go home. Thank you.